The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are uh, looking at the book of Daniel uh, in this series entitled The Pilgrim Life, Living as God's People in a Pagan Land. And in chapter 1, we got into where they are. They are in Babylon. They've been snatched out of their homeland, and they've been put as effectively slaves um, under the king, assimilated into their culture. Daniel, um, by God's uh, kindness to him, is able to help them help uh, Babylon, though it is the greatest power in the known world at that time, understand its place in history. We come to chapter 3 here today, and we are going to be looking at a pilgrim's confidence. People who are called as pilgrims, people who identify with Jesus, who are following Jesus at home and yet not quite at home, the confidence of what a pilgrim's life looks like. We had our passage, thankfully, read for us earlier. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and we're going to jump into this together, okay? Father, as we look at Daniel 3, we're grateful for this story of these young men that you used to show us that we are not alone in the fiery furnaces of this life. And because you are with us, we have a confidence that is unlike any other in the world around us. So we pray that you would help us to see this in the passage this morning, and that we would walk away knowing and experiencing your goodness with us. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to jump right into the passage, but what I want to put on your radar as we jump into this passage is that we are here in a situation where Nebuchadnezzar has just received from Daniel the vision of what history is all about. Nebuchadnezzar received a vision about this gigantic statue with a gold head, etc., down, you know, to clay feet. And in that vision, it is said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the pinnacle, so to speak, and yet you will be destroyed by the kingdom of God himself. You do not have the strength to withstand God's advancing kingdom. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does, as any tyrant does, he latches on the part that he likes and then moves forward. He builds this gigantic golden idol to himself in the middle of their culture, in the middle of their economics, in the middle of all of the way in which Babylon operates. And so we're going to be evaluating that, looking at that, and seeing how in the midst of this gigantic golden statue uh, dedicated to Nebuchadnezzar or his gods, um, whichever one is actually the passage is not quite clear. It seems like um, like any tyrant, whatever he sets up is like a foil for himself. It's really just about him. In the midst of all that, we are going to be seeing that Daniel's friends help us see that God is with us in the trials and sufferings of life, right? As we read through this passage, it's a dramatic passage, isn't it? And you hear their names over and over and over again, and you hear the fiery furnace language over and over and over again, and the passage resolves at the end of it with seeing that God is in the midst of the fiery furnace. So here's our main point for the sermon. Do not fear the fires of life because God is with you. That's the main point of this, the passage, I think, is where we're going to land, is where we're going we're to kind of back into this, so to speak. We're not going to talk directly about fears, but we're going to back into seeing that God is with us in the fires of life, with us in every aspect of life, which will address the fears, but will address them by understanding the pressures that we experience, the trials that we experience, the furnaces of life. And those can be lots of different things. Those can be cultural pressures. Those can be job-related pressures. Those can be 
actual physical sufferings that we experience, autoimmune diseases or disabilities or whatever it is that we experience, mental health struggles, it could in fact be being suddenly thrown into suffering and fire, metaphorically or I guess physically. But there are many types of fires in life, and the point of this passage for us is that we do not need to fear the fires of life because God is with us. So the first thing we're going to pick up on, we're just going to skip ahead in the passage because kind of like any Old Testament passage, it tells a story and then it repeats the story and then it repeats the story again to make the point. We're just going to kind of skip ahead a little bit and we're going to pick up here in verse 8. And we're going to start off by looking at the pressures of pluralism. I just want to put a little asterisk here. Um, I just want to, as in terms of like sermon writing craft, I totally stole this uh, outline from Tim Keller himself, the patron saint of King's Cross. I did not steal all the points. I'm just saying I still did work. Like I, I still like worked on this this week. <laughs> but the outline I thought was sufficient. I was like, good to go, moving on. So the pressures of pluralism, we're going to see here that in the midst of what's going on, right, the Babylon is kind of like any major city. It has a lot of people from different areas and regions and cultures and contexts. They are all coming together, or they've all been in, in uh, the Jews' situation, captured and brought in and assimilated so that then they can go and kind of spread the good news of Babylon to their home countries at some point. They are all kind of like this very diverse cosmopolitan city that's been gathered together, and here they are in the middle of the greatest city and the greatest country at, in the known world at that time, and in the midst of all that, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to, in the middle of all this, you might say, kind of like the Eiffel Tower in Paris, set up what our culture is all about. Here is the cultural epicenter. Here is who we are and what the center of our culture is all about. In the middle of that, right, he sets up a gigantic uh, golden idol. It's not clear if it would be like a pillar with a golden idol on the top or if it's a, a, a man all the way down like uh, Lady Liberty. I'm not sure. Not really clear. It's more important that here in the middle of their culture is set up this idol. And around that, they are said, you must adhere to this idol, right? And what it's not saying in the middle of this, right, you are commanded, verse 4, O peoples and nations and language, when you hear the sound of the horn, all the music, you are to fall down and worship the golden idol that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. What's not being said there is that you must now be converted and believe only in the Babylonian gods and culture. What is being said there is that you must accommodate, you must gravitate around the Babylonian culture and gods in addition, excuse me, to whatever your cultural or religious preferences are. It is, in a sense, you must not necessarily convert to being a Babylon, Babylonian worshiper, but you must accommodate it, right? They're not told to renounce their gods. They're not told to say that this is the only way of living life. But when it comes to the, the, the public sphere of our life together in Babylon, this must be accommodated. This must be oriented around, right? This is what you might say, this is the, the pressure of pluralism, because you're going to begin to feel, right, there's a pluralistic society, right, kind of like America. We're welcoming everybody, we want all different cultures and, and peoples here, but when rubber hits the road, everybody must at least accommodate this 
and their public life together. This must be accommodated. So here we come to verse 13 to 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage, I, sorry, we skipped a little part here. All right, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing the knee, not bending the knee to their golden idol, right? That's the crucial, uh, critical part of the story. <laughs> I kind of skipped over. Then when Nebuchadnezzar hears of it, verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll come back to this, but note that's their slave names enslaved to, that they've been given to say that they should be enslaved to Babylonian gods, not their Hebrew names, right? I'm just going to pick up on that. They were brought before him. So, so they brought these men before the king. Then Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound, right, they're given an out, right? We're going to give you one last chance, right? When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, right? They even got the Scots represented there. I'm not sure how they got Scottish people there, but they got bagpipes. To fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? See, there is a totalizing, there is a, not, there is a sense in which you must accommodate my culture, you must accommodate my supremacy, you must accommodate my gods in addition to yours, but when it comes to the final issue, this will be the ruling issue of how you engage with the, cultural, uh, with the culture around you and how you engage with the Babylonian culture, and I'm not really sure that getting, your God's going to pull through for you because our gods are kind of supreme, right? There is a certain level of superiority amidst the, the pluralism that they have going on, Right, And, of course, you must note that there is a direct connection between Nebuchadnezzar's fiery rage and the impending fiery furnace that they are coming into. Right, This is what you might call the privatization of faith. Right, Neb uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they must privatize their faith and bow the knee to the cultural pressures around them. That is the issue at hand. Right, This is what we're calling the pressures of pluralism because... They are being told, whatever your faith is, it must be at this level and no greater. It must be private, or as one politician has lately called it, it must be relegated to the inner sanctum of your soul, but never once engaged with the public sphere of life. Right? This is what we call in America the privatization of the faith, because amidst, uh, while we do have the First Amendment rights, so to speak, those are being interpreted and being implied in such a way where any public expression of your faith will come in conflict with the prevailing culture around us. So, for example, I'm not sure if you guys remember it, um, when uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I'm not sure, does anybody remember this name? I'm, some of you are not politician geeks. She is a, a prof uh, law professor, um, and she happens to be a practicing Catholic who is the mother of seven children, two, I think two of whom have... Uh, disabilities, and so she was nominated for the Seventh Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, and in the midst of her confirmation hearings, Diane Feinstein said the following to her, dogma and law are two different things, she said, and I think whenever, whatever religion is, 
it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in your case, Professor, she's addressing um, Judge Barrett, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you, and that is of concern. This is a high-ranking American politician going after the religious beliefs of somebody nominated to a court position and saying, your religious beliefs do not bend the knee in a way that I approve of for the cultural position that we placed you in, or we want to place you in. This is where you find that the privatization of faith is being enforced in a certain level, right? And I'm not picking up the sword and saying, we're going to go to culture war and any of this stuff. I'm just acknowledging that this pressure exists in our life together in America today. We, we will find, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that there are cultural idols that must be adhered to, and they, are, they must be adhered to with religious fervor. So, in, in um, Dr. Judge Barrett's case, her religious faith as a practicing Catholic was running into this uh, separation of church and state dogma of American life, and it was being questioned, are you too Catholic to be in public office, is basically what was being asked. For, cult, for Christians today, we will continue to run into this issue of the pressures of pluralism. Christian social commitments will ultimately cause us to have very, we will feel the tension of political engagement today. Or, frankly, whether it's voting in November or not, it is your life and your job today. We will feel the pressures of Christian, of engaging and being a part of the culture around us. So, for example, to my mind, there's like four Christian, four commitments that Christians should be committed to uh, with radical commitment that will cause uh, problems for you in being a down-the-ticket voter. Not that you can't do that, but it'll, it'll be a pressure that you must consider. Christians should be sold out for racial justice. You'll note here in this passage that it is the Jews that they go after. There is a racial undertone to this passage of where they have attacked and, and uh, uh, aggressively gone after. We'll see that again in chapter 6, where Daniel is being the highest-ranking official in the country. He is the Jew that they have a problem with. There's a racial undertone to that. And you see this again in Ephesians 2, where Paul has to address again the racial injustices within the church itself. Christians should be radically sold out for racial justice. Christians should be deeply concerned about the poor and marginalized. Christians should be radically pro-life. Christians should be radically committed that sex is committed, sex is between men and a man and a woman in marriage. Now, when I say these four things, we're going to immediately feel, some of you maybe even kind of feel a tightness in your chest of, I can't believe that we have to talk about this in church. Or, how do I do all four of those? The early church was committed to all four of these. The early church was radically committed to each one of these, so much so that they got a reputation for being the people in their day, being pro-life meant um, picking, off, picking up children out of the gutter that they were, thrown, that were not unwanted and thrown outside the gate of the city. So that's why Christians were early committed to social work because they were the only ones doing it, Right? Christians will be committed to these things in one way or another, in one degree or another, and it will cause you to have problems with abiding by whatever uh, platform idol exists for whatever party 
is reigning in the day. There are two major parties, and two of them major in two of those issues, but committing to all four of those will bring you into cultural pressures, right? We see this in the early church today, and we see this continuing in our lives today. So, for example, some of you, I've talked to you, and I know that some of you have experienced this, where you have had um, gender-inclusive training within your workplace, and the tension just, you feel the tension. How do I take this training how do I learn from this without losing my job? Well, we can say on the one hand, we want to be able to be able to take and receive any training to help, uh, help us understand other people and their experience on their terms. So we can take the whole gender-inclusive training thing, receive it, benefit from it, and understand people that are very different from us or maybe that you identify with and help us to be able to understand them in a way that engages their life on their terms. On the other hand, we are going to have to, at the end of the day, begin to say something similar to sex is defined by biology, gender matches biology, God has said something about this. We're going to feel the tension there. So, for example, I'm not sure any of you are familiar with the whole uh, thing going on with J.K. Rowling these days. Like J.K. Rowling's like my girl. Like I'm down with her. We're besties. She liked one of my tweets once. Did you know that? I'm really famous. <laughs> So, J.K. Rowling recently has gotten into a big, big uh, issue because she is what is being called a TERF, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, for simply saying, sex defi is defined by biology. Biology is determinative of sex. And she's saying that simply for the fact that women must, be, must have their rights protected on the basis of biological sex because they are largely excluded or written over within the medical and political establishment. She's just simply making some very basic statements about the value of women's dignity based on biology. But in the, in the, in the culture of today, so the irony of this whole thing, again, I don't want to get like, going off on too much pop culture knowledge, but J.K. Rowling is then being you know, called out and cancel cultured by Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson. <laughs> and I'm like, talk about biting the hand that feeds you. you know. So they... They're getting into it because of this pressure. We're going to move on from this, but I just simply want to say, this is where we see some of these pressures happening in our day-to-day. -day. We will feel them one way or the other, and we are going to have to wrestle, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with why will I lean into what God is saying and believe him, or will I not? Now, I will note, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just simply did not obey the command to bow, to bow the knee. They did not go picketing. They did not go fighting. They did not go tweeting and creating a culture war so that they could get into the fight and then play the victim card. They just simply said, nope, we're going to still be a part of this. And the culture said, nope, you're going to be a part of this on our terms. That's what it will feel like. I'm really just trying to be a good employee. I really am just trying to love my neighbors. I really am just trying to do the best I can politically. And there will be, nope, you must go further. And that is the pressures that is going to create a tension that could even create a fiery furnace of confusion that we must work through. So as we're following through this story, noticing this is, we're leading up towards a final fiery furnace that we're going to pick up on. But with that being said, we're going to here pick up in verse 16 that following the pressures of pluralism, we're going to see here, verse 16 to 18, the precision of true faith. We're going to see here, as they feel these tensions, as we follow along the story, 
these verses, I think, are actually, though it's very spectacular that they get thrown into the fire furnace and don't die at the end, which we all know the end of the story. These are, in fact, I think, the central point. These are, in fact, some of the most critical passages for us from this chapter. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, you're going to throw us into the fire when we don't bow the knee. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Right? They are not making a fight of this issue, like we just kind of said, right? They're not like picking up and like being like, ah, we're going to show you. They're just like, hey, king, you know, are you being respectful, O king? This is, we're not going to play ball. Here's how it's going to be. We're going to trust our God, and however this goes down, we just want you to be really clear. Even if we don't get saved from the fire, we don't regret it, right? Have you ever guys, I, I want to make reference to that tattoo, the picture of the tattoo where the guy's like, no regrets, and it's misspelled on his chest. <laughs> like, they're like that, but intelligent, actually like they knew how to spell it correctly. Like, no regrets, we're trusting God. We know that he's got us. Notice here, our God can, you know, our God can, verse 17, but this is, be this so, our God whom we will serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Sorry, it's a bit of like a poetic tongue twister. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, right, what they are addressing is getting us closer to the essence of true faith in this passage, right? They are speaking of God's willingness, not his ability. God is willing. We know that God's willing to save us from the fiery furnace. He's certainly done miraculous things up to this point in uh, redemptive history in the Bible. God can save us, but God doesn't have to for us to still believe that he is our God, right? What we are seeing here, right, you could say that simply this is the principle of faith, right? We believe in God, period. We're going to accept whatever comes after this. This could be simply a display of conviction or principles. It could be read as a bit of like some stoicism, right? Like, you believe in what you believe, emotionally detached from the world around you, receive what comes. I don't think that's what's going on. You'll notice here that they are, they're very intimate in how they answer this question, verse 17. But be this so, we're going to throw us in the fire, our God. There is a personal latching on to God. This is our God, not the God. He's able to do this. We believe him. He can do this. He is our God. We cling to him. He is our God, regardless of how this goes. He is our God. He is able to save us. He may be willing to save us, but even if he doesn't, he is still worthy, and he's our God. This is how we get into the essence of the faith that they are clinging on to here, the faith that does not fear the fiery trials of life, because even if God does not deliver them from their suffering, even if God does not deliver them from the trials that they're going through, even if God does not deliver them from the pressures that they, that they are experiencing, he is still worth being their God. They, in effect, are loving God for being God and who he is rather than what God can do for them. How many times have we experienced this where 
when we get into suffering and trial, we respond with anger towards God because now somehow God has suddenly violated the contract that we've created with him, right? Religious people do this all the time. Spiritual people do this all the time. God, I love you, but I love you enough so that you don't do what I, li- I don't want to happen in my life. Otherwise, we're on good separate terms. God, deep down we feel that we have served God and that he should serve us. We scratch God's back for being God and he's happy to be God because he's got people like us who love him. But in return, he gives us a good and happy life that we want. Right? I've experienced, I remember experiencing this with a friend of mine um, who was uh, at my, my last job when I lived in Philly. And uh, the conversation we had was kind of about where he was with God. Hey, where are you at with God? What's, what does that look like in your life? He, he had brought up somehow, and he had said, you know, I prayed to God to get this job, and then I got this job, and I was like, so do you believe in God? It's like, no, it's just coincidence. It's like, we well, got the job. Like, God gave you what you were asking for. It's because, in a certain sense, he was living out this principle of, I love God only if he gets me what I want when he's useful for me, but I don't actually want God. In this passage, we are seeing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego love God for God himself and not merely for what he can do for them. Right? That's, that is the profound reality of, but if not, verse 18, be it known to you, O king, that we shall not serve your God to worship the golden image that you have set up. God is able, even if he does not deliver, he is worthy of my faith. You will always be trying to find, then place your blame on what is going wrong in your world if you are getting, if you're looking to God for the things that he gives you and the things he does for you. You will be in perpetual anxiety in your life and faith. You will always be wondering, what did I do wrong when suffering comes? Because it will surprise you. You will always be looking to blame other people because suffering isn't right and it should, it should be blamed on somebody else but it could just be that suffering is a part of life because that is the way the world works right now with sin existing in it. They, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego could have said, we believe in God if he delivers from the furnace. Instead, they are just simply looking to trust in God and he is enough. I was talking about this with our small group this last week. Uh, I was kind of doing like, if you've ever had five-minute conversations with me, you know that I will get in kind of like these like progressive rants where I'll just kind of like keep amping it up and ranting about something. I was ranting about how it annoyed me that in baseball, uh, when a guy hits a home run, goes around all the bases, and then taps on the home plate and does this. And I was like, why don't they do that when they strike out? Why don't they, or even better, why don't they, you know, walk up to the plate before they start swinging the bat and just go, anything what happens, God, grateful for this moment. It's only when they experience the success of having hit the home run that they come home and then... Now, I just want you to understand, me and Jackie Bradley Jr., I'm ride or die with that guy. Like, I am like forever a fan of baseball, but I'm just saying that is an exposure of this idea that I only praise God when he does what I want, which is largely in America success, whereas is God enough to fail at whatever you're doing? Is God enough to have failure and suffering in your life? Is God enough so that when you do walk through the fiery trial, 
regardless, ride or die, you get God, is he enough? Because if it's going to be God plus, it's always going to be God plus, plus, fill in the blank, infinitely. God, I, I'm really looking for a spouse. God, I'm really looking for a house. God, I'm really looking for this job promotion. God, I'm really looking for this. And when you don't get them, or when tragedy comes and your car gets broken, or your house gets broken into, or in one way or another, tragedy comes, you will constantly be in this anxiety sense of like, God, why is this here? When the reality is, when God is enough, you will find that you do not have to fear the fires of life. So we're going to pick up here verse 19 to 30. I'm not going to read all of it for us, but we're going to pat, we'll look through this and we're going to kind of come to the culmination of this passage, the grand culmination, the promises of suffering, not what we were hoping for. But this is the reality of life, the promises of suffering. Verse 19, let's pick up here. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't you just love, just as a comment, how evocative, how like very, it's very dramatic how the story plays out. It's got these poetic repetitions of their names, the poetic, the fiery, the burning fiery furnace, which is a tongue twister, right? And here we have the, 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 his composure changes towards them. You begin to feel in the story with them. His face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown in the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell and fell bound in the fire, burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Right, he's already forgotten their names. They answered, and the king said, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You see, in the Bible, the image of the furnace is regularly used um, as an image of suffering. That's what we've kind of been talking about. But this is this point gets elucidated or it's clear through this passage. Sorry, this keeps going down. Here we go. Sorry, I'm like having to continue like to strain my eyes. What am I looking at? Nebuchadnezzar's rage at them not serving his God or his kingdom or his way is released in this image of a fiery furnace. But the furnace is often used as a picture of suffering. So, for example, we have Deuteronomy 4.20. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. Now, the, the, the experience of the Hebrews at the time would have been all of 400 years of suffering in Egypt. And so he uses this image of furnace as a picture of suffering. And so when we get into this passage, we are not told 
they are delivered out of the furnace, but they are delivered through the furnace. They are delivered through the suffering. They are delivered through the trial that God has, in effect, arranged for them to be thrown into. So, when we come to this passage, we're going to be, I want to just pull out for us three promises related to suffering. Three promises related to suffering because if we don't cap, uh, latch on to these promises, if we don't hold on to the promises of suffering, when we come to suffering, we will begin to find that we are totally um, discombobulated, we are confused, we sway around, and we don't begin to understand what God is doing through them. So, the first one may be less important than the other ones, but kind of already stated in a certain sense, is that suffering is inevitable. <laughs> I know this is like a great sermon for you to be, you know, be welcoming in the spring, fall weather, and you, you really wanted this this morning. But suffering is inevitable. We just preached through Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that we saw through Ecclesiastes regularly over time is that it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, this is Ecclesiastes 9 where basically just comments on suffering happens to everybody. Suffering is a part of life. You live long enough, right? If you're, if you're 25 and under, you know, you've been happy, healthy, and probably, you know, decently experienced life, and so that you don't experience a lot of suffering. Maybe you have. I, you know, my kids' experience of suffering in their life is limited to, you know, stepping on Legos and, you know, poli political disputes among the four of them. But that's not to say that some of you haven't experienced extreme suffering by the time you're 20. That being said, you're guaranteed suffering the longer you live. Suffering comes with age and comes with life. It comes with this reality of who we are and where we, we live. Suffering is not something that sends you an RSVP to say, hey, just want to set up a date for the suffering. Get back to me. Let me know. Suffering comes out of nowhere, right? You see this in verse 21. The men rose and bound, and they were thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. Um, and they, they basically, they were bound with, sorry, that's, I think I skipped a verse there. They were bound in their cloaks and their tunics, their hats and their other garments, right? They were bound so fast they couldn't even get ready to be thrown in. They were just suddenly thrown into the furnace of suffering. They were suddenly thrown in. It was just suddenly brought upon them. Some of us have had that experience this summer, being suddenly thrown into suffering. It comes without an RSVP, but it is also something that our culture is largely ignorant and largely tries to push suffering outside the normal experience of life, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever seen this in an older house. Some older houses have a very kind of weird place in them. It's right off the main stairwell of the house, kind of off the window that looks out the back, but it would have been a big, gigantic window, about four feet wide and eight feet tall, and it goes onto a little plank that sticks out about eight feet. I've seen this in some old houses. I don't know if it's new to any of you guys. I've seen it in houses, and the original design of this was so that when somebody in the house dies, that's where their coffin got set so they didn't stink up the house until they could bury him. The house was designed, could you imagine waking up every morning <laughs> walking down your stairs and being like, someday I'll be right there. Or somebody else, somebody else in my family will be right there. The house was designed in such a way that suffering was just a part of your normal experience of existence. It was not a surprise. It was built into the fabric of how you lived your daily life. Right? I think that the only part of my house that is designed to remind me of suffering is the lawn and the trash can. Right? 
I can't think of anything else that's designed to remind me on a regular basis of suffering. And maybe it's the two flight of stairs that I have to take the laundry down to take it all the way back up again. Suffering is, is inevitable, and it comes for us, and it does not send us an RSVP. But more importantly, we're going to see the second thing, the second promise of suffering. Suffering can refine you. Now, I say can refine you because we have all met people that have walked through extreme suffering, and it has twisted them, that has made them angry. They have become defined by their suffering in such a way where they are inwardly turned people, where there is something seriously wrong. Suffering can refine you, but if it is not walked through carefully, if it is not walked through in the hands of God himself, it will pervert you. But we see here in 1 Peter 1, and this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, here is almost a... I can't imagine that Peter didn't have Daniel in his mind. The fiery furnace, right? It's in there, right? Precious than gold, though attested by fire, right? It's in the cauldron, sorry. I'm going to connect the images in my head. Gold is put into a fire to refine the impurities out of it. That is the refining process of gold, right? You get your whatever your wedding band's made of or you get any sort of aspect of your life that's made with gold. It is made through the refining process of being put into fire so that the impurities, so that the things that do not align with what gold is are gotten out of it, kind of scraped off the top of it so that the gold is all that remains. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though untouched by the fire, have their faith refined in the furnace of affliction. They are thrown into the fire so that they can see then the full reality, the full results of their faith. Our God is with us. Our God is true. Our God does deliver us. But they only experience that by walking through the anxiety, the stress, the fear of being thrown into the fire. Can you imagine being them, right? You've just watched guys heat up a furnace to like seven times the normal heat of a furnace, which, I mean, it has to be wicked hot, you know, like it has to be super hot because it's, 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 you know, basically like killed the strong men of the day that were like, you know, doing the air on the side of the fire to get it hot. They died. And you're watching all this happen for you. Here's a little gift for you, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You get to sit on the cusp of this about to happen. Imagine, wrapped up, lassoed together, here you go, all the anxiety and fear and and concern and stress that you're experiencing, and then to be inside the fire itself, in the fire, the furnace of affliction, they experiencing, I mean, I cannot imagine what it's like to watch flames walk around you inside a gigantic iron bowl, maybe, that's red hot on the inside. You're watching all of this happen. It's like water air, like air conditioned temperature on the inside. It's just such like a discombobulating experience to imagine. But only experience the provision of God refining their faith by walking through the suffering. The only way out is through. Often when we walk through uh, suffering, whether it is anticipated or not, 
we feel the, at the end of ourselves. We feel the end of our strength. We feel so tired that we can't fall asleep. We feel so anxious that we can't calm down. We feel so stressed that our back tenses up. We feel at the end of our ability to calm ourselves and to be of any strength for ourselves because when we are in that place, there is nothing that we can do to stop the pain and suffering. We realize that there is nothing that we can do to stop whatever it is that the suffering is. That is where suffering refines us because we are left with nothing but God himself and only God and only God for who he is not for what he can do for us in the midst of the suffering. The ferocious pain of suffering, whatever it is in your life, makes your heart tender to God. It is the weird reality of suffering. It is only under the pounding reality of the affliction of suffering that our hearts are made most tender to trusting in God himself. But... There is a third promise, which is going to feel natural to this, but this is maybe the third and most important promise related to our suffering. God will be with you in the furnace. Did you notice that? I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You see here, God is himself showing up in the story. God is himself suddenly appeared in the middle of this whole political, cultural story. God has himself showed up so that Isaiah 43, 2 is lived out in their exact experience. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, the water, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. You're taking Isaiah 43.2 and grafting it obviously naturally into this story to see that God is himself with you in your suffering. Whatever that is. Jesus walks in the fire of their suffering. They are assured of God's care for them. Their, his provision for them. He is with you in the midst of your suffering, which often is what we feel is least true in our suffering if we expect that God only gives us health and wealth and success in life. But God is, in fact, leading them into the furnace so that he can show them that he is most near to them. So near to them that, in fact, they have nothing happened to their clothes and they're completely free of being defined by the fire. The fire, in fact, does not define them at all. They have no smell of the fire on them. They aren't singed. Not even a, a hair is like that, that smell of like burnt hair, you know, when you like get a match too close or something like that. Or maybe certain children like to burn their hair or whatever. I'm not, my children have never done that. But my parents' children may have. Um, they experienced nothing of the fire defining them. In fact, the only power of the fire was under the power of the God himself who was with them to refine them and to assure them of his presence with them. This is because Jesus himself walks through our suffering. He walks through our pain. He walks through the furnace that we deserve. He, does, he walks through the furnace of God's wrath so that we can experience this freedom and power. Can we go to Hebrews 12, verse 2? 
the pathway for Jesus was not around God, God's wrath. He, the pathway of Jesus was not around our suffering. It was through. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You see, the wrath of God was the furnace that Jesus walked through to bring us to the throne of God. He walked through the suffering. He walked through your pain. He walked through the trial that you experience so that when it comes time for you to walk through them, and you will, the pathway is already blazed through the furnace so that you walk with Jesus hand in hand and experience God's power with you, his presence with you. He, you experience Jesus himself, not that the suffering does not happen, not that the suffering is not real, not that the pain and pressures of life do not happen to you, but that in the midst of them, you walk through them like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and experience the miracle of God's presence with you. And you can, with Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned and ultimately executed by the Nazi regime, pray this. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but, you, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. This is the prayer of a man who knew suffering, because he knew God's presence with him in the suffering. He certainly knew himself. I can't, in my own power, change any of this suffering. I, in my own power, can't change the situation. I, in my own power, cannot prohibit suffering from happening. I can't change the pressures around me. I can't even stop the pressure, the stress, and the, the suffering from happening. But in the midst of my suffering, I can see that you are the light. You will not leave me. You are my help. You are my peace. You are the patience that I need for the suffering. You know the way, even if you don't understand how you got into the middle of your suffering. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lead us into this story. We are backed into addressing the sufferings of life. We are backed into the fires of life and seeing that in the middle of all of that, God is with you. There is nothing really, there is nothing to fear about the suffering, even though it is, excuse me, fearful, even though it is not invited, even though it is not what we desire in life. There is nothing to fear about the suffering and trials that we walk into and have surprised upon us. This type of faith of resting in the hands of God the type of faith that Bonhoeffer prays, the type of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experience only comes in the furnace of suffering with Jesus. Only comes in it and not being excluded from it. And so we can end with a simple verse from Romans 8, some of the most powerful verses in the Bible. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we know this, we pray this, and we experience this because God is with you in your furnace, because he loves you. So let's pray. Father, as we have looked at this passage and 
consider this amazing story of your servants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their experience of the pressures of life, and their example of true faith. More importantly, Lord, we see at the heart of the story and desire a faith to know you for you, to enjoy you for you, to get you. And whenever the fear of, of and trials of life come, we can walk through them knowing that you're with us. We pray all this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.